2: and uh, I am not exactly solo, no Luke, no Rob today, but I do have a very interesting in-studio co-host slash guest here, (laughs) Mr. Robert Hyde, and uh, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, Robert. It's good to have you sit in with us today.
3: Uh, Yeah, the last time uh, we were at a different studio and uh, Luke was with us and Yep. Doc Future and a couple of others, I believe.
2: Yep, that was the uh that was our fiftieth uh, show party. That <laughs> was uh you, myself, uh, Doctor Future, uh Joe Damari, who's otherwise known as Prime, and uh my friend Heather and uh and of course Luke. Yeah. Always Mr. Luke. Right. <laughs> right. But uh you know, uh you come down here from Louisville today and we're gonna have Dr. John Ward uh Interview with him coming on pretty soon. But uh, I just wanted to get you in here. We can talk about some of the stuff that you've been studying the last, uh, well, it's been a year now, really, since you've been here. So, you know, what's the kind of stuff that you've been looking at and uh, looking into?
3: Well, if I started uh, from yesterday and worked backwards, I would say,
2: <laughs> <Right.
3: coughs> I've just finished uh, reading a, a book, uh, a kind of an anthology, I guess, or something, of H.L. Mencken. The uh, the old Baltimore newspaper writer, yeah. famous in the twenties and thirties, critic of the establishment, that sort of thing.
2: Wasn't he a big uh, critic of like the American people as well? That he had some <laughs> <Yeah>. choice <laughs> words to say.
3: Yeah, he called them the booboisie and yeah. so forth. Yeah, he's a he's pretty knowledgeable sort of guy. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I came away from reading his his book was. Um, there was a lot of stuff that was, that was really commonly known in his day that uh, that anybody, I mean, a lot of people read his, his American Mercury, even, you know, it, the establishment didn't control everything. Right. Uh, so there was a lot of people who followed what he had to say. Uh, but he talks about things very plainly, very bluntly, that have now been just completely swept under the rug. For example, okay. uh, his his take on uh, police state oppression in this country in World War One, right? He is very thorough about that, and he goes he goes after it from the top down. Wilson and Palmer at the top, and the yeah, the the local Attorney
2: General Andrew. Uh, Arnold Palmer, the kind of <laughs> like the mentor of J. Edgar Hoover, I believe. Yeah, right? yeah. and uh, the whole first the Red Scare and, of the 20s. And so
3: forth, and, you know, all we hear about, that, I mean, when I've read in in histories, you'll hear a little bit about the Red Scare and and so forth and so on, like, you know, maybe this was legitimate, but he talks about how they went after uh, any people of German extraction in this country right. People that uh, that just bothered to raise questions, let alone the Quakers, let alone the commies, let alone the labor people.
2: You know, one interesting thing to about that that time period, that the, the, the anti German hysteria was so bad that even Dachshunds were like beaten to death on the streets in the in when America first went to war in
3: nineteen seventeen. Yeah, yeah, my uh, my. Grandparents on both sides were of German yeah. descent. Uh, both families had come over sometime in the 19th century and I don't know too much about their backgrounds, but um, they never said too much about that. Uh, I mean both of my uh, both of my parents were born right at the time of the war years, so their parents, my grandparents were definitely you know in the yeah. middle of watching all that happen. But uh, my dad did tell me that uh, the local pastor at their church, who was himself a German immigrant, was watched. Uh, agents, government agents, would come and listen to his sermons and so forth. Uh, it was a real deal. <clears throat> and the thing that's significant to me, a couple of things is, you know, we talk about the fact that a lot of Christian conservative Americans today are sticking up for the police state they're they're unaware of of that and and on the other on the other side you know people that are warning against it um don't often bring out you know this has happened before This, this isn't right this isn't just a a theory about how you know things could get bad if they got bad no things have been bad Things right. have been the, really bad.
2: That's one of the things that, the, I guess, the, what you call the the so-called truth movement, mm-hmm. and like the Alex Jones. And, and They always look back to this hark in the time where the democracy was flourishing and things mm-hmm. were not the way that, that... But if you look at, um, you know, especially like the work of Howard Zinn, People's History of the United mm-hmm. States, which I know there's a lot of people that are critical of Zinn. And, I learned a lot from right. Zinn. Yeah, me a too. A whole lot and if if you look at that though i mean like you know the civil war i mean lincoln you know um he suspended habeas corpus right which you know people could just be arrested for just any for just any reason mm-hmm. uh that was kind of the beginning of it and then world war 1 also and then world war 2 with the internment of the japanese that was also uh you know, people were put into concentration camps. I mean, it did happen. I mean, granted, you know, obviously it wasn't as bad as the Nazi death camps, but people yeah. were interned against their will. You know, they By lost the thousands. They lost their livelihood, they lost their homes, and when they returned, they had to face even more uh, uh, prejudice out there in the, in the mm-hmm. one on the West Coast.
3: Yeah. I tell the story of when I was, uh, when I was in Fremont, California, about 35 or 40 years ago, we had a groundskeeper that was a Japanese-American. And uh, he was probably, oh, I'm going to say he was 50, probably about 50-year-old man. He just kept the grounds for this apartment complex where I was renting. Yeah. And so I went down one day with a glass of lemonade just to get acquainted and talk to him. And he have, was one of the kids that was locked up in the concentration camps during right. world war Two, and you know it's great to say you know he had a good attitude he wasn't he wasn't out trying to you know uh overthrow the established order or anything like that but you know obviously his family had suffered through all that and he was he was the guy who had to accept that that's what had happened and yeah. uh there, but there were a lot of people, you know. I would say just a gen, one generation removed from that, who were really either oblivious or chose to be unaware of what had happened
4: at
2: yeah. that time. It, you know, um, George Takai, the guy who played Captain Su- Sulu on uh, Star Trek. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, he, he um, you know, he's a big advocate for gay rights you know being Mm -hmm. gay himself but he looks back on what that happened to him you know when he was a child he was put into the internment camps as well real yep and you know it, it it affected him and he he sees a parallel between kind of the uh what's been going on with with gays homosexual rights that whole issue and the reaction of the christian right and he feels like it's very similar to what happened out there in the west coast back in the 1940s mm-hmm. so
3: back to Mencken, uh one of the things that's interesting is uh when when menken was you know leveling his guns at various people in the establishment for, for all kinds of things that he saw was wrong he one of his his last uh articles before he had a stroke was on the abuse um, of how do i want to say it? it it was it was a civil rights issue in baltimore where a bunch of, of uh, white and black tennis players wanted to get together and play tennis with each other and kind okay. of make a statement by doing so was this and a little later on
2: was this in, this the, 60s, was in the 40s, 40s? this okay.
3: was in the late 40s and uh and uh, the city fathers you know stepped in they had some kind of old Jim Crow laws or something right and they weren't gonna they weren't gonna put up with that and of course Mencken came out in their defense because you know that's hey, that's the way that's the way he felt that you know good grief here, these people freely want to compete with each other in a in a public park, and you've got some kind of a crazy law that yeah. says they can't do it.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah. I, I want to ask you too. You know, we got just a couple of minutes here before we got to get the guests on, but uh, you've been reading a little bit um, on you know, kind of the relationship between like the kind of the Christian right wing and, and Israel and uh, mm-hmm. evangelicals and the whole. Israel being involved with prophecy and so some of the stuff you've been looking into right. on that, with some of the things you've been reading. You know,
3: I haven't, I haven't drawn too many fresh conclusions. Yeah, uh, I'm probably a lot like you, worried worried about what I see going on in the Middle East and trying to sort out uh, fact from false flag and propaganda and
2: absolutely. I don't
3: have any real real new insights at this point i try to keep up with paul craig Roberts and, yeah. and what he sees going on
2: but well we're going to talk a little bit about with uh, dr ward and we're going to probably a lot of the show we're going to talk about what's going on over there because he um he lives in egypt and of course he's an archaeologist there but you know apart from that just being someone that is a westerner albeit non-american that lives in in Egypt, he, I think he's got a pretty good um, insight and a good perspective on what's happening in in that region. Uh, this Syria thing, it gets it gets worse and worse every day. Uh, you know they they just occupied this ancient site called Pal- Palmyra that was a dates back from the Roman uh, mm-hmm. the time of Roman Syria. Right. Apparently, they trade route. Yep place yeah they pulled uh, like 200 guys they pulled like 20 guys and executed them in the amphitheater the old amphitheater there and made the townspeople from the neighboring town watch while they were while they were doing it and uh it, it seems like our and i'm going to bring this point up with him is that it seems that our policy in iraq is different in our policy is syria as far as isis is concerned and we're going in there to Iraq. And it's almost like they've used ISIS in a way to try to get rid of the government in Syria. Uh, but yeah, they kind of want that, that to continue in a way. But they want to just make sure that since it's spilled over to Iraq, that gets cleaned up first. And nobody really cares what happens there in Syria. And it's insane. I mean, the, there's like 9 million refugees or something from Syria. Uh, it's 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 horrendous, and you're not hearing about it really on the American news.
3: Yeah, I, I I'm concerned about it. I I try to keep up with it, but man, I haven't been able to piece it together.
2: Yeah, and I've, that's the thing it gets it gets it gets confusing more and more.
3: <laughs> I've been I've been distracted probably by what's going on in Yemen, and. Uh, no. Don't really know what's happening there either, but I don't like it. Right. Uh, it's What's always crazy to me is that the solution to every social problem is to go out and pick a faction and, and side with them and kill the other one. Yeah. That's always the solution. Right. Pick a country. That's always the answer to their problems. And I'm really disgusted with that whole frame of mind.
2: Yeah. Uh, th- there's there's so much going on and it and i would say you know obama uh, at this point is just about as much to blame for any of this stuff as, as bush was um yeah, they inflamed that situation over there in syria to to the point where it spilled over to iraq and you know we have the problem that we have and the iraqi army is apparently a- absolutely pathetic cuz they've just folded over And just handed in their, handed their weapons and just ran out of that. I believe Ramadi was the latest one that fell, which is not all that far from Baghdad. And, but yet in Syria, you know, nothing's, nothing's really been being done. And they, you know, I just think they need to just give up this war against Assad and and just accept the fact that the guy's probably going to stay around and clean up the situation before more and more people get killed. Well on that bright note <laughs> let's uh we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna take a little break here for us and we'll be back on Conspiranormal with Dr. Dr. John Ward. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. I'm here with uh, my good friend, Mr. Robert High. We had an interesting discussion about HL Minken and uh, Japanese internment camps of the 40s and how things have always been bad and we have uh, on the line uh, Dr. John Ward who is an archaeologist who lives in Egypt although currently he is actually in Sweden but uh, we're going to get some of his insight on what's going on over in the Middle East and Dr. Ward is also one of the guys that's behind the intrepid paradigm the paradigm symposium the ipbn network he's on intrepid radio as well as the situation room along with him uh, scotty roberts and rocky stucci who have both been on the show and i want to welcome you to Conspiranormal, dr john ward it's been a long time coming
5: it has indeed thank you very much adam thanks for having me this evening
2: absolutely uh, yeah, evening for you and middle afternoon for us.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ten past nine. The sun is still up in the east. Well, she's in the west now, but she's still up, and the moon is up in the east. It's quite funny. But it's it's blue skies here, but it's nine o'clock in <laughs> the evening. It's about five degrees, and I'm absolutely frozen.
2: <laughs> Absol- uh, uh, the, uh, just curious, how far are you from the Arctic Circle?
5: Oh, uh, as far away as you are, probably. Mar- okay. Okay thousands thousands of miles away I'm, right. i if you, if you to draw a kind of line i'm kind of at the same height as liverpool in england so All right. i'm i'm pretty far north but i'm not i'm not that north
2: so then you would be pretty close to like stockholm and the baltic matter
5: no, stockholm is a good uh, it's a good flight away from here so i think oh about wow flight we were actually going there on wednesday to give a lecture um on our recent discovery at uh, sorcella um so no we we're, we're we're quite uh, we're quite far south actually but it's still oh, freaking okay. cold here. I think, I, think <laughs> right, yeah. I think it's just Sweden. I think that's why there's nobody living here. I mean, that's why yeah. they've got 9 million people in the population and about 1,000 million moose. Um, <laughs> I, I think it comes with a prerequisite that you have to have fur to live here.
2: <laughs> land land of the ice and snow. Yeah, it's a bit like Alaska. As, as, as Led Zeppelin said, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, I, what I want to kind of start to to talk about uh, with you is kind of your background and who you are, and how you became interested in archaeology and specifically um, ancient Egyptian archaeologists. Yeah. Would you consider yourself an Egyptologist as well?
5: Well, I mean, this is this is the weird thing. You know, there are people out there who will say, "Well, I to be an Egyptologist or to be even a, call yourself an anthropologist or an archaeologist, you have to have a university degree. You have to be have to go through the whole the whole run in the mill type thing, um, which is quite right. You do, um, and I will agree yeah. with them on that. Um, but my background is a little bit different. Um, I never went to university. Um, I left school when I was eighteen. I did college. Okay." and i left back in those days i left with what they call the old a levels and the uh, sitting guilds which was the equivalent of a i don't know a bachelor i suppose uh, back in those days um, so but th- my whole life changed uh, oh, about 20 years ago and i just decided to jack in everything that i had worked for i was a, a junior partner with a real estate firm in Herefordshire. i was a okay. local local politician for the conservative uh, party oh uh, really I I'd basically reached that pinnacle at the age of thirty. I'd reached the point where th- this there was nowhere to go. This this was it. This was going to be it now for the next thirty years or thirty five years until I retire, um, if I retire at sixty or sixty five, if not earlier, or if I die yeah. from stress. And uh, <laughs> I just decided that no, this this isn't what I want. So I sold the Range Rover, I sold the Audi, I sold the four bedroom Victorian house and. Paid everybody off and uh, took the family and we moved to Egypt to follow my dream. And that was archaeology. I've always been interested in archaeology. Um, Always been interested, of course, in Egyptology. Uh, Fell in the country years and years before that. And uh, it was a chance financially. The opportunity was there. And as they say, when an opportunity presents itself, you should always grab it with both hands and go with it. Um, Be done with the fear and just go. And so we right. did, and uh, I, I sold up lock, stock, and barrel, as they say, and moved to Egypt with the family. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, on a personal side, there the, the, the were things that were happening with my marriage was, which wasn't exactly rosy, so it was a way of patching things up, and, but that didn't work, so by the by, on that one. But uh, it, for me, it was the opportunity of a lifetime, and I just seized it, and I took it. And I am where I am today because of that. And I worked my way through the system. Uh, One could say that there was one door would open, another one and another one and another one. And it just kept on happening, a kind of synchronicity, I suppose, one could say that. And uh, I worked my way through, as I say, that system and worked my way through the hierarchy and uh, got to where I am today, the assistant director of the Gebel El Susilo Survey Project.
2: Have you ever been, have you, uh, were you always at Gebel El Susilo? Yes. uh, living
5: there? Yeah, basically. I mean, I haven't always been there, No, I mean, that's, yeah, that—that's my prime baby. Um, my research has always been the the migration of symbolism, the documentation, the recording of ancient symbolism as it migrated across northern Africa into okay. and Europe, and how that's been assimilated into various cultures religions of course uh, societies and different aspects of our own cultures across the whole of Europe so the research didn't just cover a great geographical location from northern Africa across Europe but also covered time and space um, because of course I could go back three three and a half to four thousand uh, years and follow that migration of symbolism as it crossed the, the trade routes of the Western Saharan Desert. And as it crossed there, it went over into Europe and then through the houses of Europe, and across then into Britain and across from Britain over to America and so forth as we come up to today. And then we look at symbolism as it is today, whether that be in a visual aspect or even in an architectural uh, aspect, because symbolism has now taken on so many guises that we are literally surrounded by it, perpetually all, all, all day long um, and for most of us we, we don't actually realize it but uh, right. I, I look at the symbolism and how it's been incorporated not only within um, the written word or, or the, the the visual aspect of course through media but also of course through architecture uh, and also through symbolism in, in landscape and how we as men have or man I should say uh, has manipulated the landscape in such a way and in such a variety that it does actually uh, represent certain aspects of ancient religion, ancient cults, etc., 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 and how that plays on our psyche, um, as Jung would say, the, the, the collective unconscious. Um, I, I like to think of it more like the, I, I've termed the saying, the external constructed consciousness um because i believe it is external from the bodily form and so that 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 is uh kind of mm, takes on a whole different viewpoint really from a from a different point different point of view
2: well john what would be a what would be a symbol that is in western culture that uh something that we would know quite readily uh that but dates back to the the period of ancient egypt to that time period
5: well, I mean, one, <laughs> there's so many, oh, um, yeah.
2: it's
5: I think one of the ones which I always like to bring up, because it's very controversial, and it brings up, a, it stirs a lot of emotions. And the reason why I use it is, be, is purely because of that. It's, it's a stereotype, it's an archetypal symbol, and that is the swastika. Um, okay. Even at Silcilla we have the swastika everywhere. In really? Yeah, and uh, if you go to Alexandria, in uh, on the Mediterranean coast in, in Egypt, if you go through the sites of, say, the Serapium or el Shakafa or Tapasiris Magna, you'll find these swastikas emblazoned emblazoned on the stonework there as well. And in other sites across the whole of Egypt, I mean, I've traversed every the four corners of Egypt, tracing down symbols over the past 20 years with Maria, uh, my partner, Dr. Maria Nelson and uh, I don't think there's a site we haven't been to I don't think there's a desert we haven't crossed and there definitely isn't a sea that we haven't dived uh, we, we've been literally everywhere and that's that's what we did and, but Susila seems to be or is the origin uh, in many respects I mean that's why we refer to her as the mother of all temples because she is the largest ancient remaining sandstone quarry in the world and all the sandstone that was quarried from there Went into building the places that we see today, such as Karnak, you know, Luxor Temple, Medina Habu, the Ramesseum, Esna, Komombo, uh, Edfu, uh, to say just a few, Dendera, et etc. Um, so, I mean, the, the sandstone that came from there built these edifices that we see today.
2: So, this was the area that the, that the stone came from to build all these yep. these ancient temples. The the site there at uh, Gebel El uh, how far back does it date to?
5: <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice question. Uh, the, the quarries themselves, we can go back to, say, the New Kingdom. We'd like to okay. say we can go to the Middle Kingdom. Um, and we are searching for evidence to suggest such. Um, but at, at the present moment, we have to stick to our guns and say, well, New Kingdom at the moment. Um, but the site, the site itself, that stretches way back into the eons of mankind. Uh, we've got rock art there. That's 16,000 BC. We've really? got microlithic workshops where man worked with stone, which can go back even further. Um, we've got the ancient trade routes. You've got to remember. I don't know if you if you're familiar with Sicily, and if your audience mm-hmm. are, go to Google and look it up. It's you can go onto Google Earth and you can pinpoint straight away. And when you do, you'll see that it's it's the narrowest part of the the Nile. And the Nile is the largest river in the world. So, you know, yes. this is the narrowest part. It was originally would have been a gorge uh, that was cut through by the Nile as she traversed away down towards the Mediterranean. And uh, the two sides, we, we, our site is made up of the East Bank and the West Bank, predominantly. Um, but when you look at it from a, from a bird's eye view, viewpoint or from Google Earth, you'll notice that uh, they were basically two islands that would have been surrounded by the Nile when she was in flood. So every single living little critter that could have, that could fly, walk, crawl, sliver, whatever it could do to maneuver itself, would have gone to these islands uh, for safety during the flood season. And it, it would have been a haven for the early hunter-gatherer because he would have been able to, to literally live off the land, so to speak. It would have been self-sustainable. And we've got some beautiful beautiful repertoire of um, hunter gatherer scenes with men holding the usual spears hunting with their dogs and so forth and the bovine and the antelope and they're they're just absolutely beautiful and this is it's such a a wonderful juxtaposition of looking at those scenes and then returning to the the the, the nile side and then seeing the pharaonic cenotaphs and the spears of Hor and Heb and so forth, and looking at that and thinking, well, okay, I've just walked from something that's sixteen thousand BC, for instance, and now I'm at around about one thousand five hundred BC, and then I can go round the corner. I'm in the Roman period. I'm in fifty AD, yeah. and then all right. I'll come across some ancient, uh, some modern graffiti from the early European travellers of the eighteenth and nineteenth century, and then all of a sudden I'll see some modern graffiti that's been left by some tourist and so when you look at graffiti even though of course it's, it's, it's not the dumb thing to leave graffiti for us it, in that respect it does show a continuation of the site as a place of um, pilgrimage, worship uh, a place of beauty, a place where people have come but they've never set down roots and that's the strange thing with Sosila both on the East mm. Bank and the West Bank no one no one has ever lived there there's really there's no housing we have a few encampments uh we have a fortified area which is more roman um but we don't have a a city as such well we haven't yet found the remains i should say let's let's be honest um and so it, it it does pose the question as to why and i always go back to this flooding aspect and them becoming islands and Thinking about it from a, just a natural point of view, I mean, you can imagine the Nile during the – before the before the dam was built in 1971, that the, the Nile was literally one of the most dangerous places to be. The croco- yeah. It was infested with crocodiles. Hippo- That's the Aswan Dam? Yeah, the Aswan yeah. Dam was built in 1971. Um, and then, but you've got the earlier dams, of course, of the uh, late 19th century built by the british um so before all of these dams were built the nile was infested with crocodile and hippopotamus and so forth and it wasn't it wouldn't have been a safe place to be i always love joke with Scotty when he talks about uh, when we wrote the uh, exodus reality and uh, because good old scott he is he, is, he calls me a biblical miminist uh, where he tries to stick to scripture and he always talks about, you know, Moses being set adrift on the Nile in, in a reed basket. And I say, good God alive, man. You, you wouldn't want to be put in a reed basket in the Nile. Not, <laughs> you, would have, you would have been eaten alive by a crocodile. There's no way you would have made it. It would have been a bloody miracle. And he said, well, miracles?
2: Well, that's biblical, John. <laughs> you know, just as an observation, John, uh, yes. you know, as an American, to, for me to, to go and see 16,000 years of history would just utterly blow my mind. When, you know, the oldest city in the United States is from the 1500s. Yes. So that, that's amazing to me. I get that. I get that. And uh,
5: it is for us, though, as well, Adam. You know, um, yeah. I, I, I speak very humbly about it. And we're very blessed. And we have an amazing, and I mean this, we do have an amazing team behind us uh, both international and egyptian and our Egy- egyptian team is, is fantastic they're phenomenal those guys uh, they really are and we've worked so hard over the past six seasons to get where we are today and i'm sure you've heard the news that last season yes. spring we we discovered the the lost temple of Kenny. Now, Kenny is the original name of Sarsila. You can pronounce it Kenny or Kenu. We're, we're, we're going towards the Kenu. It sounds a bit better, you know. Who killed Kenny? Right. Uh, the, <laughs> kind of that association with The Simpsons. obviously you see Bart running around across Sarsila. I, I don't want to get there. Um, so I'd rather go with Kenu, really. Um, but we found the lost temple of Kenu, and uh, within the remains, we found some relief, of course, some, some hieroglyphic relief on, on sandstone and limestone. Um, but one of the limestone blocks that we discovered actually had the name Kenu and for us that, sh- that proved it, it was a city because it refers to it as the city of Kenu so it must mean that in that area there must have been some kind of infrastructure that served these ancient quarries and served the temples as well. Um, because we've got this temple now that we've discovered and we already had the what we call a spios which is a, a rock-cut temple uh, it's completely cut out of the, the living rock itself like a cave, for want of a better word but all nicely dressed and uh, so you had these two opposing temples one on the east bank and one on the west bank facing each other and so one, we believe that one we know for definite, of course, the spios because uh, that one's been heavily documented and recorded by us and by previous scholars as well um, John, I'd like to
2: ask you: um, yes. Is is this is it a rare thing still to find a new temple? My goodness. are are things being found ever still being found every day over there? Well,
5: things are being found every day throughout the whole of Egypt, and they, wow. they are literally being pulled out of the ground. But this is the I I'm, now you can't quote me on this, so you know I, I'll, I'll put my my fingers up in parenthesis here with a big question mark because we we've got to double check this, but we do believe it could be. The first sandstone stroke limestone temple to be discovered in Egypt for nigh on 200 years. Really? because all the rest of the temples that have been discovered are usually mud brick um, or, or other fashion. Um, there's, of course, tombs being found and shrines that are associated and uh, processional ways that are associated with tombs and tomb structures and so forth. Um, but as for temples, we believe this is the first one that's been found in this kind of locality, and in this kind of condition
2: uh, for nigh on 200 years, especially within the uh, upper region. Well, that that is amazing because... Egyptology itself really, as I understand it, dates back really two hundred years. Exactly. The beginning of it was the but, French occupation, I believe. Well that's I mean,
5: I don't know if you if you've made yourself familiar with our site, and that's the beautiful thing about Sicily is that you know, you can go into the Spios, for instance, and you're there and you're in the in the holies of the holies and you're looking at the statues of Amun-Ra and Horn Heb and you're there and you're looking around at all the relief and you and you've got the goosebumps going up and you're doing your job, you're recording and so forth and documenting and then you gaze just to the left shoulder of Amonrar and there is the inscription written by Joly who was one of the yeah. french engineers from the napoleonic engineers Right. And him is castex who was one of the other engineers as well and so and then we've got them on wow. we've got them on the east bank as well in the quarries they the calligraphy on the stonework is absolutely beautiful and these guys were there and you know it it does it makes you feel humble that you're in their presence these guys were there during the days of Napoleon. They arrived with uh, Vivion Denon, who was the, mm-hmm. the leader of the French engineers, the, the exploration party.
2: And it was- yeah, that was the beginning of it, uh, when Napoleon occupied Egypt for the brief time that he did. Yes. And that, that started it all off. I believe the this the, 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 that was the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, right, that at, is that, at that time? That yeah. is
5: correct, until we stole it from them.
2: Yeah. 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 <laughs> And then to well, th- Britain kind of Britain kind of stole Egypt from the French anyway. They stole yeah, the Suez we, Canal. You we know, we
5: take what we want. You know, you know what about. <laughs> Like we let you Americans have that little island over there.
2: <laughs> Which one is that? <laughs>
5: I think you call it the United States of America or something, isn't it? Something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that dysfunctional country where it's not really united, is it really? I mean, you've got Texas who want to be separate now. You know, you the Canadians at the top. who are thinking, well, are we British? Are we French?
2: Are we American? Are we, or we don't know. Maybe we're Russian. Um, <laughs> well, you need to come to you need to come to where I am, where they still fly the uh, Confederate flag. So you know you don't... <laughs> I'll come down there one day. I promise you. I'll come <laughs> down there. I'll come down with the Union Jack and put it next to it. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> it looks kind of similar. <laughs> uh, I want to ask about the pro- – you have two projects going on, and one is the Gebel el the survey project. Yes. And we've talked about some of that. Uh, mm-hmm. But you also have the what I, what is the Sirius project, yeah. S-I-R-I-U-S, After the Star. And it's interesting because we talked to Laird Scranton last time, about some of his work with the Dogon, about the the story of the mythology of the Dogon, the the star Sirius. Um, what's the significance? Is, is there significance to to naming the project Sirius? And what's that that project all about? Well, actually, yeah. I mean, I know Led Laird. Laird is a very very dear friend. Yes, and his good wife Risa,
5: as well. Um, and if you know if they're out there listening, hi guys, how you doing? See you in October. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This serious project, I have a dear friend who's an American uh, from L.A. And it, oh, Very long story, but I'll try and cut it as short as I can. It's very entertaining though. Um, he always wanted to photograph – The rising of the Sirius. Now, I don't know if you know the connotations of the Sirius star within within Egyptian mythology.
2: Yeah, It's very important. That's what I understand.
5: It it heralds the the flooding of the Nile. So it always heralded the bringing of life because the Nile was life. With with the Nile, of course, it brought fresh water, but it also fresh brought with it the fertile lands. Because when the waters receded, it was, it was always left anywhere between 15 to 30 centimeters of this black alluvian soil that right. was rich in minerals. And this is where the agricultural side of, of Egypt, the breadbasket of the world, took off. This is why the Romans used Egypt as the breadbasket.
2: Well, John, that would be uh, when Sirius rises. I believe that's um, July and yep. around July, August. That's it. Yeah, which and is why we call it the dog days of summer. That's the, exactly. the term. Yeah, and
5: it it, it it rises prior to the sunrise, so you basically, you can just about see it, just as the cusp, just as the sun's just about coming through. You can just make out the Sirius star, and she's there, and you can you you can record it. Now, of course, there are many temples throughout the whole of Egypt that are aligned to this, and, and, and are what we would call viewing observation platforms and so forth. Now, my dear friend, who I'm not going to mention his name, came all the way over, and I've never seen anybody turn up with so much photographic equipment. I mean, we've got we got professional photographers at Silsila, and I, I still, to this day, I've never seen anybody turn up with as much equipment as he did. And he he said. I can't do his accent for the love of the money because I can't do an American accent. But he said, John, I, I want to I see this. I want to see the star, and I want to see it tomorrow morning. This is the first day he arrived. I said, fine, okay. I said, I'll wake you up at 3 o'clock, and we'll take a taxi, and we'll go out to the Giza Plateau next to the Great Pyramid. And I'll arrange with some of my, with some of my inspector friends, and we'll we have a part cordoned off, so no want to come and bother us. And you can set up your equipment, and you can record it. I said, but you do know you're not going to see it. And you're not going to be able to record it. I said, we, I, I tried telling you this. I said, it's not going to happen. I said, the, the landscape has changed. And the environment has changed since the days of the ancient Egyptians. I said, one you've got to contend with is the smog. The second thing you've got to contend with is the landscape itself, the, the yeah. scrapers, uh, the modern infrastructure, the buildings. They, they just block the landscape. I said, you're not going to be able to see it. Let me be the judge of that, John. I said, okay, fine. Well what I didn't what I didn't tell him and I thought, well, he's American, I'm sure he'd be able to ride a horse. all, all Americans can ride horses, you know, they're all cowboys. Um, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. So, so <laughs> he, he turns up Julie in the morning with all this camera gear, these big boxes ra right? put him on a horse. <laughs> I ride him out. In- <laughs> I'm sorry, I got I got memories flashing back, and it was just hilarious. <laughs> <I got laughs> it's memory. not very Indiana Jones, is it, it? Yes, it was. I was I was doing my usual with with my penhattan Manhattan. right yeah. now desert. It was one because I, I, we have horses in Egypt. It's one of our love love with passion. So I'm doing my galloping across the desert. Maria was there as well. She was galloping. We were having a great time, and there's our friend who who was basically. On a donkey near enough because he, could, he just couldn't do anything because he had all this camera equipment. Anyway, we got there and he set it all up. And, of course, he didn't record anything. He couldn't see anything. Um, but that was – at that point, I realized that no, – the serious. Yes. Right. Let's do it. The serious project because there's, I wear two hats as, as – everybody knows all my friends within academic uh, circles know I wear two hats. Everybody within the alternative community knows I wear two hats and right. I try and bridge that gap between the alternative community and academia because I do have my, my in my personal life, I have personal interests, is, interests in spirituality, the paranormal and so forth. And these kind of interests do not, of course, it's like oil and water with academia. And so I wear two hats. And so, I thought, Serious Project, that's Serious, yeah, that'd be a great name to head up the project which will basically head up all my personal interests, the paranormal investigations and so forth, uh, metaphysical investigations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where it came from and it kind of stuck and uh, it's still going to this very day.
2: You kind of have to do that. You kind of have to wear two hats in a way. Because uh, there's all the kind of well, – like the lack of a better term, the the woo-woo stuff, and then there's the more serious kind of scholarly stuff.
5: Yes. But and in yeah, some no, ways, but,
2: never the twain meets.
5: No, let me correct you there because yeah. I, be- I I do believe – I mean there's people like Laird Scranton, for instance, people like Thomas Fusco, yeah. who are serious, serious, what I would call academic researchers – in their field because they are and you right. have to give credit where credit is due they are very methodical with their work whether you agree with it or not is beside the point what you can do with the likes of Thomas Fusco and Les Granton, and many more that I could mention you can sit down and you can have an adult intellectual discussion and debate with regards their research and when it comes to the woohoo, that's where it was down because those guys, you cannot. You cannot sit down with them and have an intellectual conversation with them because their research ends with the research which they got off Wikipedia or Google search. It doesn't any yeah. further. It's all handed down information. It's second-hand information. Right. When we talk about people, again, like Laird and, and Thomas and so forth – They're there in the front line. They're actually there doing it. They are researching. They're doing serious research, practical research. Take Thomas's work. I mean, what he's coming up with, some of the theories that he's coming
2: up with, it's just bending, literally bending time and space. And so, yeah, his stuff is amazing. I've listened to an interview, a couple of interviews with him, and I'm going to try to pursue to get him on here. Yeah, But I mean, he, he basically just looks at everything as a very scientific way to look at the paranormal, and a lot of it has to do with the concept of space-time.
5: Yeah, and so you can't classify Thomas, for instance, as a woohoo. Um, no. And so, when it comes to those two hats, and I, I will say this, and I, I will always say this, and I will always maintain this, even though I was a little bit uh, degrading there of the woo-hoo factions, I never, ever dismiss anything that anyone brings to the table.
2: Yeah. Regardless, regardless. Well, I mean that. Well, well, you you don't, John, and I and I wouldn't either. But there are serious academics out there that would any. Kind of research that doesn't fit in kind of like a scientific method or a scientific mode. They're they're not going to accept, even no, if it you is actually, very well. You'll be
5: surprised by the number that do accept it. And and I'm going to clarify yeah. that for you. And what I mean by that is they don't dismiss it. They just right. shelve it like I do. I'll file yeah. it. I file it away until such time as evidence produces or facts or other discussions, other debates, other theories, other hypotheses are brought to the foray that have a relationship with that particular part of research. And you'll be surprised the the amount of academics that are out there that work in my field uh, within archaeology and Egyptology, especially Egyptology, that there is a mixture of the worlds between, shall I say, Let's, if we go and touch upon the worlds of magic and spellbound spell and so forth, those worlds do mix because we can't dismiss them. There, there was a very good argument once that Scotty and I were involved in. Scotty came up with this um, uh, kind of answer to someone's uh, rhetoric question. And he said, if we were to destroy all religious texts that pertain to history, that we've used as a source material for historical material and data, we wouldn't have any historical material data. We wouldn't know anything, because right. most, if ninety nine percent of all historical data and material that we have at hand, and I'm talking about ancient material, um, comes from historical records, uh, historical
2: religious records. Sorry, uh, because they didn't view it the same way that we do. In that. They viewed your religion, science, all of it was together. The ancient world, they didn't see it in the same way that we yeah. kind of put categories on it.
5: It was one Gnosis. completely one Right. So one can't dismiss anything unless you are completely um, closeted and you're completely focused on one Part of your research, and that's it, and you don't want to be bothered with anything else. And that's fair enough. And there's a lot of my friends out there who are like that. And I've got, I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, you know, to be focused (laughs) and intent on on your research is wonderful. Um, But I find I I like to mix the two. I like to look into my own personal life. I like to look at my own personal beliefs, my own personal faith, and where and how that, that falls, and what the relationship is with that, with my work, and how and is there any relationship there? I, I forever questioning myself.
2: Yeah, I, I I think that I'm I'm in the same place that you are, basically. I, I I look at how all these. I have my own personal faith, and I look at how some of the things that I've spoken about on the show and some of the things that I've explored in my studies have to do with that. Yeah. And does it fit? Does it make sense within my worldview? Yeah. And there are there are things that that I've studied uh, in the course of doing this show that have challenged my worldview.
5: Oh, I I lost my unfortunately, I lost my Christian faith many years ago because of my own research. Um, Being in the land, the holy land, as they as they call it, you know, embedded in the sands of Egypt. It made me question my faith. And unfortunately, my faith fell to the side. My belief didn't. My faith did. I still have a belief um, in 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 a God. Um, I still believe, of course, in the Bible. I still believe in the Word of the Scripture. Um, but I find it very hard to tally those two with with them. What I would call faith. That 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 for me is an obstacle at this present moment.
2: Right. Yeah. It's it's understandable. Mm. It is. Yeah. Uh, so the serious project is just a. That's the that's the symbolism. That's the symbolism uh, project that you've spoken of. Yeah, the the serious project okay. that that is. It, it's not the symbolism because
5: the symbolism really has taken on a whole new vein, and uh, um, that it really has gone over to the academic side now with, with the uh, the Gibblosa survey project. Right. Um. You know, for one, one quarry alone in Sicily, we've got over f- just over four and a half thousand inscriptions and symbols. That just gives you an idea of what we. Wow. Um, so, no, the, the whole of the symbolism project has really gone over to the academic side and what I'm looking at, I, I still keep this, this symbolism within the serious project and that, that goes over I've, – I've just returned from London uh, where, yeah. I, where I taught for the weekend a workshop on dowsing and we used heavily, we drew heavily upon symbolism uh, within the workshop. Using symbolism to create or recreate, I should say, temple architecture uh, to create a kind of atmosphere that could be doused and whether that could have an effect upon our own current environment. And the results of that were were quite extraordinary. You know, there we were playing with, uh, for want of a better word, cardboard boxes. Um, And uh, they, they were blank, just standard cardboard box. And we built a a kind of shrine, a a reconstruction of a temple. And uh, they doused it, and they were able to define the edges, define the corners, define the inside, and so forth. Define, if I may use this word very loosely, because it's not one of my favorite words, energy, um, aura. Um, (laughs) They were able to define that using dowsing techniques. Um, But once they applied a series of different symbols to the exterior, of this uh, makeshift temple of cardboard boxes, it took on a whole different genre. And even the group, their dynamics changed in the group. Um, there was a visual impact, of course, but there was an emotional impact. There was I would go as far as saying that even the, the, the atmosphere was tangible. It was palatable in the room. It changed, and of course, the dowsing results changed. Of, of course, throughout that, um, so they, they, were,
2: they were interesting, very interesting results. It, do you think that it was the structure of the temple that caused that, like creating the temple, the, the symbols themselves, or was it the intention of the group of people that was giving it that energy?
5: I think you've got to, you've got to take on board when you look at this from an analytical point. Uh, perspective you've got to take all those points of view into consideration i don't think it it can be attributed to any one uh instant i think it's it's a combination of all of them um the use of symbols of course they have their own special intent one has to ask the question when it comes to symbolism especially when one uh, places it on a surface yourself you are imbuing it with your own energy uh, and of course that 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 has an intent behind it but one can ask the question does a symbol carry with it an inherent intent uh, one that is encoded within the symbol itself within the geometric pattern if it is right um and is that what we react to when we see it visually uh, there are those who for instance they don't actually see it but they know it's there they can douse it or they can feel it. Um, so is it giving off some kind of frequency or vibration? You say, now we're into the realms of the woohoo. And you see, yeah. <laughs> but, but I, I love going into these kind of realms because these are questions that we just do not have answers for. Right. Jung, again, talked about the archetypes. Um, I know that the Monroe Institute, good friends at the Monroe Monroe Institute, are working with certain symbols and using those uh, in conjunction with uh, uh, brain brain mapping. Um, I know other friends in the industry who are also looking at ways of measuring brain activity by using symbolism, ancient symbolism, as a stimuli both visually and internally. Um, and also audibly, because of course symbols can take on a, uh, a certain notage or an audible signature. Um, so the, the, there's all these different types of stimuli uh, from symbolism, and how that affects us both psychologically uh, on a conscious level and on an unconscious level. And uh, so yeah, so that's
2: that's that's my research. I mean, that's that's what Amazing. i that's what I, it, that's what I look at. You know, Scotty, uh, when I. The last time that i had him on a few weeks ago i'm sorry uh, Did he, he, I, I do apologize he, he does with one
5: you should only, you know anybody else out there who's listening who's thinking about having an interview with scotty
2: roberts you want to keep him down to at least five minutes no more I've I've had I've had Scotty on a couple a couple of times before that, and this is like My the God, first Matt, time in a couple well? of years. Are you well? Is yeah.
5: the medication working
2: for you? It doesn't. Seem- well, it, it was it was funny. I'll tell you a story. Uh, the second time, time I had Scotty on, he had uh, he actually had it. We I think we only could do an hour or something, and he had a, he had another interview that he had to do. Oh, and with as we were doing the interview, we're kind of wrapping up. Scotty was, he, he, he was talking and talking and talking. And I finally was like, Scotty, we got to wrap it up. You got another interview to go. <laughs> and he's like, Oh yeah.
5: <laughs> I love, I love that man to death. I really do. We, we make a, we, we make a great partnership, but my God, that man can talk.
2: <laughs> well, Scotty had, uh, Scotty had told me to ask you about like your paranormal experiences so that you've had, you've had quite a few in your life. And you know we talk we talked a lot about that on this show previously about a lot of paranormal stuff. Um what's some of the things that have happened to you like some of like the high points?
5: God. I don't think I've ever shared these live or on on air before
2: with with the Yeah, gente- I think that's what he was like. He was like you should ask him about that. Is what Scotty said.
5: <laughs> um Oh, well there's so many to mention um, and you see I don't mention it I, I don't talk about it, and the reason I don't talk about it and i, I will I will share a few with you um, okay first of all I, I don't usually share them purely because I, I don't it's not that I don't want to be put in that bracket I don't want to have that label it's because I don't want people to have a preconceived idea of me,
4: yeah,
5: and I want to be able to enter a room and people say, oh." There comes John. Oh, he, he's he's all right. He, he's pretty level-headed. He, he'll listen, and or he'll he'll be able to experience this and, and give us a, a kind of conclusion or, or an idea of what's happening and so forth. I don't want to have that kind of label. Oh, there comes John. He's had he's had tons of paranormal experiences, right? Uh, and so I, I, I kind of shun away from it. I will be honest. I, and there is another big reason as well. I, I'm the biggest scaredy cat there is. Um, <laughs> it freaks me out, literally. I, 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 it freaks
2: me out, too. I'm not going to lie.
5: <laughs> I mean, it's, Scotty and Rocky, I mean, it was hilarious. I don't know if they shared this story with you. Uh, we were doing a uh, a live show from the College of Psychic Studies. I don't know if you're familiar with the College of Psychic Studies in London. It's yes. over, 100, over 100 years old, as you know that. And I'm staying. Was
2: that established by Arthur Conan Doyle? Yep, that's the one.
5: Okay. And I'm staying in the original building. They're still there to this very day. As I say, I was there last week. And uh, I, when I'm there, I stay in the building itself by myself. They have a, a bedroom on the very top floor, on the sixth floor. And uh, next to the room which Harry – well, it's actually the room that Harry Price used to carry out all the seances in.
2: Oh, uh, yes, Harry Price. I'm mm-hmm, well familiar. And what so early I'm, rectory. I'm in his room
5: basically wow. waking, out, wow. and there's a bed in there now and that's where i sleep so you can imagine straight away your heckles are already up the psychological uh, factor is already kicked in before you even right. get out lift um and bearing in fact that you know you're in the college of psychic studies the amount of seances ouija boards mediums psychics you name it <laughs> they've had them there they've been there and they're still doing it to this very day right. uh, and that's the beauty about this college now I was there, as I say, I was in the library downstairs, fantastic library, sat in the wind back uh, with my back to the window in the bay window. And we were doing this live show and Scotty and and, uh, Rocky live on air shouted out, if anyone's there, anyone's there, feel free. Come and tap John on the shoulder. Make Make your presence known to him. And you're like, thanks,
2: guys.
5: (laughs) Throw a book off the shelf or do something. Rattle the chains. Make a noise. Let him know you. And I'm saying, no, guys. Thank you very much. I do not want to hear anybody. I don't want to hear anybody's presence. And I certainly don't want to be rattling the chains. Thank you very much. And I I, I giggled at the end. And then all of a sudden, we heard this thumping. I said, can you hear that? And we actually got it recorded live on air. That There were these footsteps above me coming from the room above me. Now, bear in mind, I was in the college by myself. Completely. This was about midnight. And uh, that freaked me out. But what freaked me out was the end of the show. Because Rocky played back. And he said on the audio, there seemed to be some something. There was something in the audio which he heard. And he played back. And the part where I giggled, there was a fourth voice that came through and clear as it was clear as a bell. It came through and said, he's all right, innit, in a real cockney accent. Yeah. We we couldn't tell whether it was a girl or boy. It was a child's voice. He's all right, innit. And well, that was it. I couldn't even go upstairs. Um, You know, I have to go up all the way up in the lift by myself, up in this spooky college, then crossed the landing. And it's all got automatic lights and so forth. And, you know, it, it, the place is, <laughs> excuse the pun, it's dead at night. Um, and you can you can hear a pin drop. Um, so that was one example. And, and literally only last week I was there. And uh, I came in from having a, a dinner party. I came in about half two in the morning. Now I knew somebody was staying in, in, in the room next to me they they were literally just camping out for the night because they had a long drive ahead of them in the morning and so they decided to stay the night so I knew there was somebody and so I went in all blase and real cocky like and I thought yeah I, nothing's going to frighten me tonight I've got someone else in the building so I'm fine so I walked right. blase up to the lift pressed the button went upstairs got out the lift went to the toilet brushed my teeth and everything else got into the bed and I'm laying there and I thought right sleep and I went to sleep and about half past three I woke up and I heard this, this, this running across the landing it was all the way across the landing, and then I heard the door slam—the the kitchen door. That we have our own kitchen up on, on the top floor. I thought, oh, that must be the guy who's staying. He Must have gone out for the night. He's come in late from a nightclub or somewhere because we're we're in, in, literally in the city, in the city of London, right? dead center. Right. So I you thought, just oh. think
2: it's something mundane.
5: You don't think anything of it at the time. It, yeah. At the time, because he was staying there, I didn't think anything of right. it. And I went back straight back to sleep. Got up in the morning. Saw him in the morning. I said, I said, I, don't, I said. Uh, you got in late last night, didn't you, mate? Did you have a good time? He said, what are you talking about, John? I was, I was in bed by 10. I said, no, no, no. I said, you came in you know, half <laughs> past three, didn't you? I could, I could hear you running across the landing. and going. The-. He said, nope, that wasn't me. I was in bed by 10 o'clock and I was out like a wife. Wow. And, and I said, did you hear me? He said, oh, he said, he said the IRA could blow up a, a bus outside and I wouldn't wake me up. Um, <laughs> you know, and it was, at that point, the blood kind of drained from me. And uh, I, I thought, oh Christ, you know, another experience. Um, and
2: but his- <laughs> Does that still happened. Does the IRA still blow things up? No, in, the in, in London.
5: Up. No, no, the <laughs> okay. IRA—they've they turned into the good guys now. We're just waiting for the right. Same. Um, but no, all seriousness. Uh, there's, I share one more experience with you from the college, and that was on the second night that I was there last week. And I was making these boxes because they were delivered to the college all flat packed. And so I had to erect them, you know, you had to fold them up and turn them into a box. And I, I'm there and I'm there in the, in the hall, this great big lecture room, surrounded by all these black and white photographs of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Yeats, you know, and all, all these uh, big wow. mediums and psychics, uh. all with their eyes bearing down on me. And it's, it's literally, you could hear a pin drop. And that in my peripheral vision is going crazy crazy now for oh my god, heckles are going up my hair standing in and I kept on saying there's there's, there's there's just carry on just carry on just carry on anyway I carried on it was about half past one in the morning and all of a sudden I heard, there's a little back staircase at the back of the hall and I could hear someone come up the back staircase and I heard this very light footsteps across the wooden floor and I turned around I said right that's it I said enough of this I said, I've got work to do. I cannot be doing this work with you guys buggering around, freaking me out. I said, I just can't do it. (laughs) So I went over to my, over to my tablet, clicked on YouTube. Because we've got internet there. And yeah. I, I just hit the mu- m- my history on music. And Miley Cyrus came up with Wrecking Ball. <laughs> and I just turned old Miley Cyrus up full blast, put the video on. Well, that was it. The place t- literally just went dead, and it was already dead anyway. It was, it was it, they, Obviously, they don't like Miley Cyrus, or they don't like a, riding a, a, a Wrecking Ball naked. I, I don't know. I'm <laughs> It's either one. I think the jury is out whether it's her being naked or whether it's the actual song itself. <laughs> I, I I went for Miley Cyrus, then I went through all of my Nashville uh, hits, and so that, literally it didn't bother me all night. I went to bed about two o'clock, and the place was wonderful. It was like you know I'm in Nashville, right? Yeah. Oh, you're in Nashville. I yes, love. Yes, I'm a big fan of the Nash- Nashville um, series, both me and Maria. We want to go. Actually, we actually want to go to Nashville. Her father's going this year, actually. I'm,
2: I'm available anytime. Oh, love to go down there. Love, to down there. <laughs> love that. Place. Have you ever seen a full-bodied apparition, John? Um,
5: uh, I, I I'm not going to answer that one.
2: Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about a little bit about your the,
5: the, the studies. In... seen Scotty naked count on that one.
2: Well, maybe. Uh, yeah, uh, that's uh, it would be like kind of pasty, right? Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh I've seen Micah Hanks. <laughs> Sober. Yeah. Sober. <laughs> I I've met Micah as well, so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about your um your studies in the occult and into Hermeticism. Yeah. And specifically into the life of Dr. John D. <laughs> uh He's come up a couple of times on the show, but we haven't really covered too much about him and he's something that i find really interesting because one of the things that we've talked a lot about on this show is the concept of the uh fallen angel slash watcher angels mm-hmm. and the book of enoch and in john d's magical system there was the idea of enochian magic
5: yes the enochian magic yes yeah uh-huh and what is it about it that that uh, that interests you, your that that spikes your interest. Well, I'm
2: just curious of what he, what he was conjuring up, what these beings, the nature of these beings were, and what the information that he was possibly getting from them. Okay, um,
5: it's, it's I mean, the synchronicity here is kind of funny because I've just posted to Facebook. Um, because as, as, as everybody knows, I'm prolific on Facebook. Um, yes. I, I've just posted to Facebook a series of photographs that I took at the British Museum last week while I was at the college. I, I, I popped over to the British Museum because I wanted to see the collection of uh, John Dee's uh, scrying his obsidian mirror, and his wax seals. And uh, I've, I saw them many years ago. And back in those days when I saw it, digital cameras weren't out, It was the old film, 35-millimeter uh, film. And so I thought, oh, I and take some nice pictures so I, I popped over to the BM and went to the cabinet that are in, in Hall 1. And uh, the, the whole hall was virtually empty. It was lovely. And there they were in all their glory, his obsidian mirror with the case in which it was uh, carried around in, uh, free of his wax seals and his gold seal as well. And, uh, and one little scrying crystal ball. And uh, I'm I'm stood there at the at the at the cabin in this glass case. And I don't know if you've ever been to the British Museum, but you know the British Museum no. itself should be should be put in a museum. In part, I've never
2: been to the UK.
5: It, oh, you should go, sir. You should go. Um, I would love to. It, the, the parts of the British Museum, it, it, it's like stepping back into Edwardian and Victorian Britain. Uh, it, it's yeah, it, 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 it takes your breath away sometimes. And this was such an occasion. So I got there, and I'm looking at his obsidian mirror. And uh, I was trying, and I will be honest, I was trying to conjure. I was trying to conjure. Mm. And I was looking so deeply that I was lost in it. And I could feel as if Dee and Kelly themselves were standing next to me. And all of a sudden, then Ashmole turned up and there was Darwin and there was Pitt Rivers and there was Petrie and Lubbock. And you know, and I all of a sudden I had all these greats around me that are all part of my research. And and I I just stood there and it just brought an immense warmth and feeling uh, again, that humble feeling that we're all part of something much, much bigger. But the fact that I, Openly acknowledge them in in my research and publicly, and I I don't shy away from them. I I don't shy away from the word occult. Oh my God, devil worship! What devilry is this? You know, oh (laughs) please, if you want to talk about devils and Satan, go to church. Don't speak to me. Um, (laughs) You know, yes, okay, let's go. Let's go and sacrifice a baby on an altar. Lovely, lovely. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, Harry Potter, eat your heart out. Um, it and it was it was sta- I was standing there and I could re- I could really they they weren't there of course but I could feel them I could feel their presence and it was wonderful. And in fact, again, synchronicity uh, this afternoon, someone replied to those photographs I, I put through, and they were asking about the Enochian magic, and uh, I run a group. Uh, well I, I run a group you don't run anything on facebook do you You're run by facebook really um i have a group page on facebook which is the esoteric brotherhood of luxor which is attributed or is is set around everything that's a and hermeticism and esotericism and so forth all the schisms and uh so I, I've got a good good bunch of people in there, and, and I put the put the pictures up, and a, a lot of people come through, of course, making oh wow, John, wow, wow, wow. the British Museum, oh fantastic to see them on display, etc., etc., etc. But there was one guy who came and said about the Enochian magic, and he said, "Does it work?" And I thought, "Hmm." And I'm not going to mention his name, uh, and because uh, it was, he then sent me a private message, and we were talking about it in private messages, and. Uh, It was interesting, his perspective on it. And I I had to be honest with him and say to him that the Enochian magic, for me, I find it wanting. I find it in a place where it falls into the realms of, I think you had to be there to believe it. It, There's a lot of magicians uh, and followers out there and adepts and initiates who will swear blind that the enochian magic works for and it most probably does and i i wish i was at the same level or ilk as they are where it's working for me i don't find the enochian magic working for me and i know why it's because when i look at the symbolism i see script i see cypriot script I don't see uh, a mystical spiritual script that's been handed down by fallen angels or angelic beings or what, whoever they were, entities that uh, Dee and Kelly were uh, conjuring through their scrying.
2: Right, because you have the knowledge of these past yes. cultures. And, and, yeah.
5: and so I look at the symbolism used within the Enochian script and, and I can kind of rip it apart. And, I, and then I'm left with… Bits of the Kabbalah, I'm left with bits of Cypriot, I'm left with bits of Phoenician, I'm left even with symbolism that I have at Silcilla And so, and I, 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 I go, oh, and I feel exasperated by it. And I've, I've even mentioned this many, many times where I ask the question, and I ask it to your audience who are listening Where are the masters today? Where are they? Because they're remiss, they're missing. We we don't know who they are. We we have these gurus that trample over us, who try to sell us a bill of rights. You know, buy my book, buy my DVD, and and I will yeah. give you the secret. You know, subscribe <laughs> to me for fourteen ninety five a month, and I will divulge to you the secret that will make you more powerful, more wealthy than. Well, not more than me because I don't want you to be more powerful and wealthy than me because I have this. But I'm going to give you a little <laughs> snippet of the secret. I won't give you all the secret because that will make you all powerful. So I'll make you a little bit powerful by giving you self worth, and at the same time I'll make you penniless and broke because I'll take your fourteen ninety five off you per month. Right. Oh please, I'd, I'd love to take a nine millimeter toward these gurus. I really would. Um, <laughs>
2: Said right here on Conspirator Normal, folks.
5: Uh, yeah. T- take, I tell you what they should do. They will be conscripted and sent over to Syria. <laughs> let, let them preach to ISIS and let them see if they can get 1495 out of ISIS. Right. I yeah, I'm
2: sure know, that's going to happen. I
5: don't think it's going to happen. Though I think some of them might fall for it. Um, One that, thing before must, we uh, – um, But no, it's the – and that's – so when I look at D, I see a yeah. monster. A I, monster? No, a master. Master. A master. Okay. I yeah. see a master there, and for me, I i, like to, I would like to say—and don't take this the wrong way—I I like to say I commune with him in a way in which I can I can use him as a mentor. I look at his work, I look at the progress he made, I look at his research, um, I look at the way in which he kept his library, his diaries at Mortlake, and the way in which he befriended the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth I, and the way in which he used that position to not only further his research, but further his pedigree at the same time. Kelly, on the other hand, is a total different kettle of fish. I believe he was a charlatan, a fraud. And he deserved everything he got when he fell out of the town and broke his leg, and eventually died from his injuries. Um, it's, it's a shame that it didn't last a little bit longer and he didn't die in
2: pain and agony. Um, the, the, the guy. Don't hold back, John. How do you really feel? No,
5: I mean, you know, I mean, who in their right mind? I mean, the I, I feel sorry for John. I really do. I mean, yeah. he must have been going through some emotional problems at the moment, a bit like Rocky Stucci. Um, he, he he. When when Kelly said to him. You know, master, you must give me your wife so I can shag her. The angelic beings have told me so. Oh, okay then. Yeah. Yes, please. Go. Yes, yes. Take, take him, Edward. Take him. Take, take my wife and shag her rotten. What, what <laughs> is he talking? Seriously, what planet was he on at the time? Saturn? I really don't know. Obviously, he got the message wrong from the angelic beings, um, whether his scribing wasn't work, whether his wax tablet was a little bit wet. I don't know. Something was amiss there. Um, <laughs> and, and so I look at that part and, and a lot of people kind of fall for this stuff. They don't question it. And that worries me. And it does worry me. You know, you, yeah. I speak to so many people within the, within the occultic world. Let's label it as that. And... They don't question. They blindly follow. And I find that very disturbing. I find it as, right. as disturbing as when I used to go to church, when I was an avid churchgoer with the High Church of England, when I lived in Hereford in England. There were so many people who sat in those pews who never questioned. They would never go up to the vicar at the end of the sermon and say, well, why did Jesus do this? Why is the parable telling us this? I don't understand. Why is it during the Eucharist we must condemn a Caesar, um, a Caesar and so forth? Why, why are we doing this? Pontius Pilate, why, why do we condemn him in the Eucharist when I'm about to take the body and blood of Christ? Uh, nobody ever. And if you don't ask questions, are you blindly following this because you are that kind of person? Are you introverted? Or is it because you feel a sense of allegiance? I, I don't know. I, and I, I even question that, you see. So I'm forever questioning things. And so when I look at these masters and so forth, especially in the occultic realm, I, I like to get a grasp on it. And, that, and, and that's why I like I, I do a lot of work, of course, with Crowley, as, as
2: a lot of you know. And uh, I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you about Crowley. Uh, uh, you know, he's one of those figures that is extremely controversial. Is and he? And there's a lot of people, I mean from the kind of like the milieu that I'm in, yeah. <laughs> but I I I uh y- you know there are some people that believe that Crowley is the well, it's like this. There's one side that believes Crowley is the the beast of the apocalypse and he's like the source of all evil. Oh, and God. then there's the other side that believe that the guy was just a drug addicted heroin addict charlatan that just was really really horny. That's
5: the twist with ever, ever, ever. <laughs> ever read anything about Crowley. Again, I refer to Wikipedia. Um, these people, you know, they're in their mother's basement. They're surrounded by Kleenex tissues that are on the floor, all scrambled up, and they're wet and they're crusty. And they've got the. <laughs> <laughs> You're killing Robert right now. I just want you to know that. <laughs> and and you know these these kind of people. Well, I I think they well one number one definitely Homeland Security definitely worth a call uh number two they should never be given passports and number three never feed them after midnight um but obviously they <sighs> have never done any serious research they really need to read up crowley was a complete crackpot yes okay fair um he was a sexual addict yes he was was he addicted to drugs no he wasn't addicted to drugs he used drugs to get to places where we only dream about getting to um mm-hmm. he was a very willful chap and you know one of the things that always rem- that stands out for Crowley is when he was a child I don't know if you're aware about this when he was a child he killed his cat I don't know if you're aware of this he smothered it uh chloroformed it and when it was when it took its last breath in his, in his arms. He opened a window, and he was quite high up in this building, wherever it was he was. I think it was on the shores in the, in the Scottish house. And he threw it out of the window. And when it hit the pavement below, his brains smashed out, and his guts all over, and there's brain matter everywhere, and so forth. And this cat was dead. And he pondered on this, and he thought, well, what happened to the Nine Lives? And, that, and so you, you've got to think, to yourself, my God, man, you should have been institutionalized yeah. at that point. But the the, the the child, Alistair, the child, was investigating, experimenting. Whether you agree with it or not is irrelevant. You've just got to follow the person and follow what he was going through. And the period, the time period in which he was living, he was on the cusp of the changeover between the 19th and the 20th century.
2: Which yeah, he, was, he very much was.
5: You know, we're talking about time when there was horse carriages still on the street and, were, and literally overnight they disappeared and there was cars. There was these things that moved. What devilry is this? Um, they moved by themselves. There was no horses. You know, uh, there was things in the sky. We're talking about the, the last charge of a light brigade where men on horseback with swords fought men with machine guns on the open yeah. battlefield. And you've got to put that into perspective. We can't put that into perspective in our own day. You try and think about it. Think about this now. The Iraqi war, you know, uh, any any one of them, <laughs> where we've got our boys on, on the on the on the ground, and you've got the enemy in front of you and they're in their in their tanks, and you charge them with a horse and a sword.
2: What, I'll tell you, you John, know, uh not to digress too much, but you know, in the United States, World War One is not very is not spoken about very much. Why not? And so, Well, because we weren't involved in it for very long. But as a student of history, you know, it, 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 in your country, it very much molded the psyche of that generation. Oh, yes, most definitely. Most definitely. You know, Tolkien, in his intro to The Lord of the Rings, states categorically that he lost so many of his friends in one day at the psalm. Yeah, uh, and that's where the College
5: of Psychic Studies came from originally yep. um, you know so Arthur Conan Doyle could see that you know you've got to put this again I use that word perspective Britain and Europe was was
2: bereaving they were in bereavement I mean it, it was mass I mean you, you can't even put it into words the amount of people 20,000 men I think the first day of the Somme yeah. when they and were they, just marching into machine gun fire and they yeah. were never, you know and as a
5: family as a, as a father I can speak as a father to not have a grave where you can go and visit the mortal remains of your 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 fallen son would be horrific because there's no bereavement process, there's no mourning process taking place. You you don't know where he is. You you don't know how much he suffered. You've got no place where you can lay that flower, um, or you can go and pray or talk to him. And for me, that would have been that that would be horrendous. And so I can I can. I can feel what it must have been like at the end of the First World War in London. And so Arthur came came apart with the mediumship and so forth and gave solace to these people. Right, And that's that's how the college came about. And that's why you had this massive drive also during the early part of the 20th century with such groups as the Golden Dawn, uh, the Theosophy, uh, the Theosophical Society. Um uh, the College of Psychic Studies, the Society for Psychical Research. All of these were trying to ask, uh, answer the questions that the First World War and the, and, the, and the age of the Industrial Age was bringing about. People could see this mass death, this mass destruction, this mass change, and they would turn into God and they would turn into the church, and the church had no answers.
2: Robert is nodding his head right now
5: And so they turned elsewhere And they turned to themselves They turned to their their own cultures They turned inwards and they turned to their own society And people would come up and say Well you know if you go and speak to old Mrs. Betty Down at number 63 She talks with the dead And it, it, it grew Today we refer to them as parlor games Well they weren't games they were during the aristocracy of the 1850s, yes. But we're talking about the time of, mm-hmm. where literally tens of thousands of people had just died. You know, the, the, there were no men in the streets; they just weren't there. Yes,
2: needlessly.
5: And well, may I add you, you. You can say needlessly. I mean, there's always a reason for war. Um, nature has a, has a funny way of uh, depleting the numbers. Given that, be human ants zebra or what have you True. nature will always find a way uh, to cull the numbers i'm a great advocate of that and so it doesn't matter whether you're into love peace harmony embrace let's all have a protest and sing kumbaya around an open fire and hold hands and pray to god and pray peace and fort manifestation the power of prayer it ain't gonna stop assad dropping a barrel bomb on some village in syria and it's certainly going to stop the Saudis from dropping a neutron bomb in Yemen Um, it's going to happen whether you
2: like it or not that is the reality unfortunately that is true Yes, John let's talk I want to talk to you about as a westerner and I think for it's important that you're not an American (laughs) and that you have this but, but you have this Perspective. See, we have a very, I think, in, in, in my country, a very narrow view of what's going on over there in the Middle East. Mm. And so I think that you have a very unique perspective as a Westerner, non-American, that is resident in the Middle East. Yes. What do you want to know? <laughs> well, <laughs> I just want to kind of get your feelings on what's going on over there right now. Uh, is there do you see an agenda being played out there do you see that uh, America is just constantly just making Uh, mistakes in our policies I will stop you there
5: if I hear one more person talk about the conspiratorial side of this that's taking place at the moment I refer of course to Syria and Iraq and if you want to lump that one in there as well Yemen Mm -hmm. (sighs) I'm exasperated by this. There, there seems to be this. I don't know what how, how to put it. It seems okay to put the blame on a government, i.e., the American government, for what is happening out there. Now, of course, we as the coalition are proportionally to blame for the situation irreversible we all know that the Iraqi war the toppling of Saddam Hussein major problem wasn't really thought through didn't really look at the ramifications thought we'd make a quick buck thought we'd get hold of the oil thought we'd get rid of a dictator and we thought we'd get hold of the trade routes and we will be all happy and be able to sing Kumbaya around that fire that didn't right. happen um what is happening at the moment – and again, I refer to – a lot of people will mention the void, the power void, the vacuum that was left after the toppling of Saddam Hussein. That was filled. It, it was filled. And, uh, but it was filled with the wrong people. And it was – the process in which it happened was very ad hoc and very dictatorial from the coalition. Again, this caused problems and friction, and what we're seeing now is a repercussion of that, but we cannot take full blame, and this is where I argue the point. We cannot take full blame. It is proportional blame, and people don't like using that word, but I like to use it because we're not the ones pulling the trigger right now. They are. We're not the ones who are spouting uh, a perverted verse of religious rhetoric, and it is perverted. It's not true, Islam. This, this is some twisted madman's ideological twisted version of it. Probably got it from his friend in his mother's basement with the crunched-up Kleenex tissues looking on Wikipedia. And um
2: Well, you know, John, I mean you you're living there. Yes. You're exposed to people that are of the Muslim faith. Mm. And I think that you can see yeah. that, you know, that the these these guys that are out there, ISIS, that the and these other groups, that these are extremists. Just like in my own country, where, you know, that you have a mainstream Christian church and then you have a very vocal right wing Christian fundamentalists.
5: The only difference is that your guys don't go around beheading each other. Not yet. And and that's, <laughs> you, that's another thing. Um, you know, it's it's very difficult for me. And, and the boys, you know, Rocky and Scotty, we, we have very heated debates. Yeah, well, on, I enjoy them. <laughs> on it's very topic, and I can go down the roots of what I call, as you know, I'm writing a book called The Hidden Hand, and it deals directly with what is happening in the Middle East and the way in which. There seems to be some kind of manipulation taking place. And I'd like to state categorically for the record. I don't believe for one bloody moment that it's the Obama administration. That man couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag, let alone organize a bunch of goat herders to get them together, give them a bunch of Kalashnikovs and say, go take Syria. And while you're there, cross the border and take Iraq. No, okay, guys. No. See, John,
2: that's why I said that, that. That I think it's important that you're non-American and that <laughs> that, that, that you understand it, because because in this country, and I hear it all the time, there is so much. I'm just, and I have my own problems with Obama. I'm not going to say that he's innocent, but at the same time, there's a big conspiracy now that Obama's behind all this, and that he's well, whipping up it's. the Muslims no, over there, and he's whipping no, the Muslims up is. over here. You know, I actually for your audience, I know who Obama
5: is, and you can take this to the bank. He's a reincarnation of Aleister Crowley. He is <laughs> Satan. He is the Beast. He <laughs> is evil.
2: Yeah, you hear that too, John? I mean, seriously. There's tons of YouTube videos of how Obama's seriously. the Antichrist and uh,
5: get a grip. Again, Wikipedia. Teenage boys, mother's basements, Kleenex tissues. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's it's. Scary. I don't know what's more scary. Isis with a clash in the coffin, a sword or listening to some teenage boy in his mother's basement. I, I Sometimes I get scared about that um, because more people listen to the teenage boy in his mother's basement with the cleanest dishes than they do actually uh, ISIS. <sighs> Things took a turn for me. and I don't know if you caught the last situation. Room. I was pretty vocal. I got pretty heated up emotionally about it uh, purely because I'm, because I'm an archeologist. Right. But also I, I, it, it hit a chord with me, and I don't think it's hit American audience yet. I don't think your news has really covered it. I know, and this may come as a surprise to you, European news has not covered it. And in fact, just you know, for a synchronicity point of view, if you were to turn your computers on now, if you, if your audience is listening, turn your computers on now, look at the news. The news this weekend is covering absolutely diddly squat. I mean one of the main news articles on the BBC is a 2 year old article about a Chinese man in his house removing to move because he's sat in the middle of a highway or something that's being built around him that article's 2 years old and the BBC are running that as a main article
2: there's no news well, at least it's better than Bruce Jenner becoming a woman
5: no but there's no broad-
2: there's no news i mean, if you're serious there's no yeah. news
5: being broadcast this weekend and that's and that's always for me that's a red flag um, that means there's something happening, there's something taking place that either has being put on D notice meaning that it cannot be uh, televised or it cannot be shown by the media, or it hasn't hit the media yet. Uh, even the quakes of Japan today that reached up about 7.8, they got into the news, but it wasn't talked about. But getting back to ISIS, the thing that struck a chord with me was the executions at palmyra and i yes. and i don't think it's sunk in with people and again i refer to the media the media hasn't covered it so the people the population of the planet globally haven't really seen it i don't think you've got to the reality of this is that blood human blood human blood regardless of whether he's a muslim a jew a christian a, a Jesuit, I don't care what his perversion is, it was human blood, touched the sandy floor of an amphitheater, a Roman amphitheater. The last time that happened was over 2,000 years ago, when we saw not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, slaughtered for the entertainment of man regardless of whether you agreed with it or not you took part and you participated in the glorification of murder and this was 2000 years ago wow and we reopened those doors this week Mm. we sat back and we were entertained and Nero the emperor sat up in his grave and applauded us because that's exactly what he said give the people the games because they were descending upon they were about to start up a revolution against against the emperor and so he gave them the games And what have we been given? There's dissension all around the world. People are protesting in their millions about this, that, and the other, from culling seals to, oh, my gas bill's too high, or or, I want to be a woman. No, I don't want to be a man anymore. I want to be a woman. Or I want to marry my brother, or I want to marry my sister, or I want to have sex with my cat, you know, (laughs) something. And we're allowed to protest. That's why we've had these wars. So we have the freedom to protest, by the way. Um... But Nero, he sat up in his grave and he applauded us. And that, for me, was the scary moment when that blood hit that sandy floor. And the 2,000-plus people that were sat in the amphitheater, by the way, forced to sit there. But they were sat there nevertheless, watched it. They watched it unfold as these men... And their lifeless bodies hit the ground and the blood curled down onto the sandy floor. We were entertained once more. And you could hear the roar go across the world.
4: Mm.
5: And the applaud. And it hasn't hit home yet. The symbolic gesture that ISIS have just done. They have just completed the cycle of what they've been doing since 2000, whatever it was, 2011, I think, when the first ISIS brigade started up. Um, but 2014, I think, was when they first began their, their, their combatant uh, strate- uh, strategy. Um, but through their, through their use of social media, through their use of propaganda, they have won the battle on that score. We can't beat that. You can't take that back.
2: It's like but a line opinion. has been crossed in the sand almost. Exactly. It's, and, it's, and it's the, just like World War I that we were discussing. You know, the, the nothing was the same. If whatever was before was before, and whatever was after and, was after. And, and the, the
5: big question for me is what are we doing about it? Yeah. Where, where are our governments? Where is the condemnation of this heinous act. You know, that they're quick to, to decry the beheading of a journalist and quite rightly. But when 20 men are innocently executed upon the floors of the amphitheater, not a word is said. Well, that,
2: that so, seems to be what's okay. happening now because you, you've got and
5: one man has stood up Hmm. And you won't have heard it. You won't, this won't be in your news in America. But Putin stood up yesterday. Really? And said publicly on, on his, his weekly broadcast that the leaders of the world should put aside their wranglings and their disagreements. And we should come together as a unified coalition to rid the world of this disease that is Isis before it spreads and infects the rest of the world. And nobody said a word Putin because we don't like Putin. Putin at the moment again I refer to the white paper that China brought out this week first time ever they've made it very public now that they're trying to distance themselves from their Russian relationship that they've always had they're willing to cooperate with the rest of the world they want to bring peace and what does America do? the very next day slaps him in the face and tells him to stop building islands the Chinese are building these islands for rapid military usage for one reason one reason only they know what's coming they can see it they're not stupid little people they understand the problems that we're facing they understand that the migration problem at the moment isn't something that should be looked at and, and discussed as a racial problem oh what are we going to do with these you know 60,000 migrants well I don't want all these Muslims here etc cetera, etc cetera. forget about that Think about the reasons why we've got this migrant problem. We've got migrants not just crossing the Mediterranean. They're crossing the Indian Sea. They're crossing the China Sea. They're crossing the Atlantic. We've got migrants going off in left, right and center. Globally, people are moving because of what's happening. ISIS is not an isolated case. It's not just isolated to Syria and Iraq. They're in Yemen. They, they took the Libyan airport only
2: yesterday. They took it. Yeah. They John, are- I just wanted to make the point that because of you specifically, I am aware of this refugee crisis. Before you started talking about it on the Situation Room, I had no idea any of this was going on. Oh, it- and there's something like 9 million Syrian refugees. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's incredible. I mean, can you,
5: you try and put that into perspective. And you try and imagine those even let's even say one percent, let's say nine hundred thousand people descended on Nashville.
2: Would you have the infrastructure to deal with them? Not at all. There's only four hundred something thousand people here. Would you have housing? Where would you house no. them? Where would you? How would you feed them?
5: You where? It. Where would the water come from? Most of all, sensible and most serious question: Where would it go to the toilet? How would you deal with the hygiene problems? And then, not even for beginning with the economic situation, what would they do for a job? Who would who would pay them? Would you pay them benefits for living on the street? Would you allow begging to take place? This is what's happening across the whole of Europe and the Middle East. This isn't just confined to Europe. Egypt is full of refugees. You walk in the streets of Cairo, and you are bombarded left, right, and centre with refugees asking you for money because they have nothing. They have nothing. Now, Mm -hmm. there are some people out there in the conservative realm, and I'm a conservative, who will say, well, you know, send them back home. Send them back home. To what? To where? Yeah. To be be executed on the floor of the amphitheater? This is – and this is the problem. We're coming full circle now. We're coming to a point where – You've got the liberals on one hand, you know, with the kumbaya and let's embrace and let's try and figure them out and let's embrace them and find out what their problems are and so forth and invite them for Sunday dinner and show them to mum and pa. And then you've got the other on the conservative side who say, like, God damn them, send them to hell, send them Right, back. yeah, yeah. You know, and then you've got the people in the middle saying, oh, I, 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 I really don't know what to do, but here's a can of soup. Uh, what? Uh, well, it's all I've got. I'm uh, fine. Um. We've got to deal with this problem. Um, we will be judged by history, what we do today, because it's going to affect our generations afterwards. It's going to affect my children, what we do now. We are going to lose at- cultural identities. We are going to disenfranchise certain parts of the community and social, social outlooks. Um We think we have a class warfare now. My God, you wait for two years from now. Class warfare now will look like a Sunday day picnic. Wow! you are going to see and you think you're seeing an exodus now out of northern Africa and, and the Middle East into Europe and, and elsewhere. You have seen nothing. Wait until the West has its exodus out of Europe and into northern Africa. That is the next stage.
2: You say about Westerners coming to Northern Africa.
5: I'm saying it will be a complete reversal.
2: Yeah, and you know, John, all this makes me yeah. think of things, and, and and this is the question that I want to ask: Is are we heading towards a new Dark Age?
5: No, I don't think we are. I think we're we're heading towards enlightenment in some in in, in a kind of retrospective way i just think you know to to get there it's like it's like birth isn't it there's blood there's gore there's pain uh, you know it's not a nice thing but the end result is perfection and um i'm not talking about utopian societies or anything i just think it's the next stage um europe cannot sustain itself and it will not be able to sustain itself with the influx that it's getting at this present moment. And if this influx. No, no, that's been, true. I mean, you know, you heard the situation where, you know, the European Union now has decided and declared that it will pay 6,000 euros per head per person. Yeah. We are now in the business of human trafficking. Whether you like it or not, I don't care how you reread it or how you wash it, it's human trafficking. Uh,
2: Essentially, yes.
5: And we're doing the same in Asia with Australia and Cambodia. We're doing the same with Manila, uh, with Malaysia and so forth. We're doing the same in Syria and Iraq, Yemen. We're doing the same in Israel, Palestine, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Morocco, Niger, uh, Eritrea, Somalia. You look at – oh, my God. The list is endless.
2: You you know, John, I I, – To, to talk about Russia a little bit and where you are, of course, geographically at the moment, you're pretty close.
5: Yeah, we, we are. It, Stone's right. You know,
2: it's it's um, as someone that grew up during the '80s and I and I can remember the tail end of the Cold War, and I can remember you know being a child and you know growing up with like movies like The Day After and. Good I think film. You mentioned, I think you mentioned the, the movie Threads, which is even more of a harrowing film.
5: Oh, that that, that really that's that scared the bejesus yeah. of me be when I was a kid. When I, I was forced, we were forced to watch that in school.
2: Yeah, I didn't actually see that till so uh, till a few years ago. But you know, someone that grew up with this, and and, and all of a sudden to now that Russia is the bad guy again. Well, I don't think and yet. You- we're right there in their backyard, aren't we? I mean, yeah. Yeah, as a, as an American, we're 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 messing with the with the Ukraine. I mean, to me, it almost seems like they could just come over here and mess with Mexico, but we'd we'd raise holy hell with it.
5: No, Russia Russia is. See, this is again misconceptions.
2: Uh,
5: Russia is only doing what it does best: protect its own assets. Right. I, 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 you say you're an advocate. That's what we do. Do, no. do, you, do, you, do you remember the crimean war yes
2: what was it about well i mean you mentioned the charge of the light brigade that was yes. russia that was russia against britain and france oh, and turkey. and yeah they were trying the russians were trying to take over turkey but britain and france invaded the crimea mm. and occupied that area for, for a couple of years i believe but who uses those ports now the ukrainians and the Russians,
5: but predominantly it's the Russians. The Ukrainians own the ports, but they don't. They, don't. Right. they use them for imports exports. But Russia uses it predominantly as a service as a service port for for its for its infrastructure. Um, Crimea historically was a part of Russia. Yeah, and so you you can yeah. see why Russia intervened in the Ukrainian problem. I don't know if you've seen the news today, which is a little bit disconcerting, Um, but mm, I I can't say too much on the radio. Uh, (laughs) What my persuasion is on that one. Um, But the ex-Prime Minister of Georgia, who is not Ukrainian, but Poroshenko, uh, the Prime Minister of uh, Ukraine, has actually given him citizenship, so he's now a Ukrainian, has now taken over the port area of Odessa. He's now in charge of all that. The ex-president of uh, Georgia. Now he's the man who reformed Georgia. Now I don't know if you're familiar with Georgia and what its stances and so forth. But you know, if you're if you're there, j- just take a look at the Georgian flag, and you'll understand exactly where Georgia's coming from um, in one fell swoop. By the way, and so look at what Russia's doing. But more importantly, and I mean this sincerely, look at what Russia. Isn't doing, and then you might understand where Russia stands at the moment on the global political stage of whatever's happening. Yeah. Russia is 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 a big old bear who's tired, who's got a lot of fur on it, but that fur is so grey and so mouldy it's about to drop off. And when that drops off, the new boys will take over. When the new boys take over, then watch out, Russia. Mm-hmm will prevail i I can guarantee you this russia will prevail
2: right you know john there's a pattern here historical pattern you know in the 19th century there was this idea of the great game and this was basically the 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 contest between great britain and russia yes and there was a in the crimean war was part of this process of this containment of the russian empire and the- in the twentieth century, you had the same thing. I mean, you, that the whole, the entire Cold War was basically just, a, really, in some ways, a continuation of that concept. Yeah. Uh, I see the same thing happening now, where Russia is being yet again surrounded, and it's like this cage the bear mentality. Hmm.
5: it's exactly what it is, and and to yeah. a certain, and to a certain extent, you have to have some iota of sympathy for the russians they're always the ones who are being got at and quite rightly so sometimes i mean let's be honest i mean they do some bloody damn stupid things um (laughs) but all in all they should they they're going for their own growing pains yeah none of our countries are perfect by any bloody measure, except for the queen, of course. The queen is, is perfect. Um, <laughs> the royal family are perfect, and God bless them. And uh,
2: But, you know, none of us are perfect. And, I take it you want to be a Sex Pistols fan then, John. Um,
5: good God. I Actually, I do like Sex Pistols, but I am a royalist through and through. God save the <laughs> queen. I will die for queen and country. God be – I was invited on James's show. Uh, I don't even know James Wright. And he's uh, he's not exactly a royalist. Um, And that was an interesting show. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he – he wanted to talk about Alistair Crowley, but he didn't
2: realize that I was a royalist. And it it kind of upset his juju. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John, we're kind of running out of time here. Uh, it's been a very interesting interview, and I think there's just so much more we could talk about. And I'd love to have you back on at some. I'd point. I'd love
5: to come back, and, and we we can chew the cut on on Saudi Arabia, and, and absolutely, what those guys are up to because uh, that that's where all the eyes should be, but the eyes are not.
2: Yeah, and, I, and I'd love to talk to you about you know a particular region that I have a passion for, and that's Latin America. Oh, you know, yeah. as as well. Hats um, off, hats off to what Obama. That's one
5: good thing that Obama's done so far: the Cuban the Cuban um, process. I agree.
2: It's it's time for that to end. It is time. time It is. The only thing
5: I want to see you do now is take over Argentina and wipe that off the face of the planet. That's the only thing. (laughs) Oh, is that because of the Falklands? We, uh, sorry, the Falkland Islands.
4: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) It's part of the empire, sir. They are. (laughs) <laughs> or as they call them the Islas
5: Malvinas yeah well they can go and shove that where the sun doesn't shine they are the Falkland Islands and all the oil that surrounds it belongs to us
2: not them well my wife is is from Brazil so she would agree with you <laughs> exactly
5: so. well done love the <laughs>
2: you're not Argentina
5: you're not married to an Argentinian
2: no uh, well, well you- John uh where can people contact you, see uh, your projects, and also um, the hidden hand? I mean, when is that, to, uh, is oh. that slated to be out at some point?
5: My, my, my agent, Italia, would love to say that the hidden hand is out next week, but good God no. Uh, things are moving far too fast. The problem with the hidden hand is that – I don't know if you've heard me say this before, but at, at my home office in Luxor, I've got a 12-meter 12, a 12 whiteboard um that's two meters high and 12 meters long and it's full of names and it shows the hidden hand it shows this fourth line uh that's behind everything and uh, every time i I, i'm getting there his present day events take over and i have to oh I might as well rewrite that chapter. now because it's just happened. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's kind of preempting itself. So it's an ongoing thing. But if you want to find me, um, just pick up an obsidian mirror and scry for me, as John D did. And you'll be All able right. to pick me up in the ether. Uh,
3: no, That's actually
2: this. what we've been doing. We haven't been using Skype. We've been using our scrying mirrors to do this interview. <laughs> it's, a, it's a first. It's, it, it's fantastic, isn't it, these obsidian mirrors? <laughs>
5: um, <laughs> Now, best place to get me is facebook just look me up on facebook there, there are countless websites i'm out there but the one big plug of course is the paradigm symposium is coming october if you haven't got yes. your tickets go get them paradigm symposium.com um it's going to be a blast it seriously is and we've got some major 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 news uh that we'll be breaking at the paradigm symposium it will not be broken beforehand um but uh both scotty and i are looking forward to making that announcement um so if you haven't got them, go get your tickets Um But little, find me on little, find me on Facebook. Find me anywhere you want to. Just Google me.
2: Absolutely, little teaser there. Yeah. Well, thank you, John, for coming on. I, uh, we're I, gonna we're gonna close this out. Stay on the line for us just for a bit, and do. we will be back on Conspiranormal. Normal. All right, welcome back to Conspira Normal. It's your host Adam Sane, and now I have a powerhouse in here, and we're just briefly gonna talk about uh, Robert. I want to get your opinions on what you heard from Doctor Ward.
3: I was uh, probably struck the most by his his thoughts at the end of the program, where he was talking about uh, Putin uh, Putin's response to the ISIS situation. Yeah, that really. That uh, that seemed to be something that really engaged him, and it has certainly engaged me.
2: So, yeah. Right. What about you? Well, just mostly the whole thing, really. I mean, the, the archaeology stuff, the uh, the symbolism material that he, that he spoke about. Uh, you know, the, the the current events, all of it. I think is just just very important. I mean. It got deep there man when he was talking about how the the executions that took place in Palmyra and equating that with what happened with with ancient Rome I mean that's really why I wanted to ask about the whole like uh, the whole dark age question and, I mean I just thought that was absolutely fascinating um, a very extreme extremely good guest. Uh, I know that you were you were nodding your head and you, yeah. were, you were laughing at points mm-hmm. and some of the things that he had to say.
3: You know I, I'd like to hear him talk more about um, about uh, maybe ritual symbols or something yeah. like that. I, I know that there's not a distinction uh, in his mind between um, symbols and political acts. I, right. I guess I would say, uh, but I would like to hear him talk more about <coughs> ritual symbols because of what he said right there at the end about yeah. about the blood on the, on the floor of the amphitheater and uh, how it's been a long time since that happened. And he talked about that reenactment uh, from almost from the Nero days.
2: Yeah, another interesting thing that I thought he spoke about, too, was the talk about John D and about mm-hmm. how he'd looked at some of that material and he saw ancient Cypriot and he had enough of the knowledge to know that that's not some kind of angelic language as has been portrayed in the occultic literature, but it may just be a language as like an ancient language. So yeah, very interesting guess. I'm going to have Dr. Ward back on at, at some point, but, uh, Right now, we have someone sitting in here in the studio, just kind of lurking in the background.
6: Help, rescue me, Futurians! They have me tied up here. <laughs> They're dragging me to a wicker man here. <laughs> this is my only chance to send the word out to the masses,
2: <laughs> These friend people friend. are not
6: who you th- they think they are. I have been duped.
2: Roberts ready to like light the light the funeral pyre. Watch,
6: yeah. watch the skies. I repeat, watch the skies.
2: <laughs> Open the fortune cookie. Help, I'm
3: a prisoner in a Chinese bakery.
2: <laughs> we have the privilege of having Dr. Future here with us just just briefly. Yeah, because uh, we were having an event here tonight, but... We uh, had
6: a break at the Bilderberg <laughs> meeting, convention, I came over for a few. How, Take, how were got into the heliport and got me over here.
2: <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> we kidnapped you from the, from the Bohemian Grove.
6: <laughs> yeah, where did I leave my robe around here?
2: Dr. Future, how are things going? How's, uh... I'm
6: in a constant state of euphoria. <laughs>
2: <laughs> how is the, uh... How, how, how is the book project coming? What's, uh, what's the latest update?
6: The Infinite Project. Yeah, the Infinite Project. The The, the, ten en- book en- magna, the Encyclopedia magna magna Benetana. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in right in the middle of the next to last one that's planned to be released. And uh, I'm bashing Christians now, so. <laughs> <laughs> Giving them the lot for, so. <laughs> a, so Christi-
2: I, a Christian bashing Christians. Yeah as,
6: a, yeah, as a Christian, that really is extra rewarding, so. Uh, just working away, night and day, every day. I wish I could read books as fast as you two gentlemen do. it Takes me forever to get through references and get out a line or a word or a piece of data here or there. So,
2: however, neither of us have written seven <laughs> volumes <laughs> <laughs> at this point.
6: Uh, you had better sense than that. So it is going along I, every day. That's the main focus of what I do. It just takes me a long time to do Absolutely. everything. I appreciate everybody being patient. Hopefully, we're all will still be alive by the time they're released.
2: Yes, right. If,
6: uh, yeah, well, the blood moon's coming up September 28th. Blood moons, ISIS, I'll and everybody else does get us first, right? Yeah.
2: Uh, any foreseeable time or date?
6: Well, given the past, you know, um, and, and also since these books not only have <laughs> proliferated in number, but also in size each, the last one was 712 pages. Yeah. This one, I don't think, will probably be a breezy 600 or something, probably, so Given the size of them, I've been trying to knock out one a year. So maybe, maybe toward the end of next year. Okay. The last one is sort of the gossip tell all one. So. Right. It'll, it's, I have thousands of references, but not as many large books, just a smaller shelf of books. So maybe that'll go quicker.
2: Well, you know, Dr. Future, there's a lot going on right now. In, I've heard that. In the world. And we, we just talked about ISIS and all that. And, and one of the things going on is this whole, uh, uh, Dugar thing. That's happening uh, mm-hmm. with the, the what's his name, Josh Dugar. Yeah, I'm just I, I really have not been. I really didn't know anything really about these people. I just you know normally I, I ignore the TLC reality shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you, any insight on what's going on with with with
6: that? Well, it explained a lot to me when I found out one of their major sponsors was was Bill Gothard. Yeah uh in his institute of basic youth conflicts and i've been to his class on that really and um there was something in my spirit that told me even though it was very very fundamentalist it was it was all talking about scripture yeah but there was something in my heart that said there's something that just doesn't sit right with me and of course with him it came out about his involvement with some underage ladies there and people can read online to find that out. Um, and so, you know, you hate to blame every individual for the acts of others. But um, I guess in the bigger picture, to me, it's just another um, brick in the edifice of what I see as the decline of traditional evangelical culture. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's of Jesus or of the gospel. They stand as they always stand. In fact, I would say in many ways, they're self-evident for right. people, whether you're a traditional Christian or not. Those teachings stand there. But there's a certain culture that is getting more and more desperate and more on the ropes. And it's a culture I've come from. Yeah. And there's parts of it I appreciate. But at the same time, this is, you know, the Bible says that there's a shaking that happens at times so that that which will, cannot be shaken will remain. And I'm thinking that there's probably some shaking going on amongst the people in God's family so that they can find out what's legitimate and real. And uh, it's not time to gloat. It's not time to point fingers at others. It's time to learn from it. So maybe we get our personal acts together before it's our turn. But um, I, I, I see that to a large extent. I sort of see it as the eclipse of the traditional evangelical culture. And its institutions uh it's it's hero figures, you know, that are sometimes even made in statues like we have here in Nashville, but all of that is it's like the decline of the Roman Empire hmm. and so um, I but i don't have I have nothing but hope, and I believe it's part of God's hand, while many people of faith are deriding that our, our society is going to pot and all this stuff. And, you know, my parents' generation said the same thing, and their parents' generation said it. But I believe that this may be God's hand to try to get things down to the way they used to be. Yeah. And, and, and persecution may be part of it. In fact, it may be essential to make things right.
2: You didn't hear the, the interview with, with Dr. Ward, but um, we, I had said something to him about... We were talking about ISIS, and we were talking about fundamentalism, and he had said something, I had said something about comparing them to the right-wing, comparing a Christian yeah. uh, evangelical church, and he had said something, well, the the difference is, is that they're not killing each other, and I said, my, my response to that, however, was, not yet.
6: Yeah. I, yeah. I can
2: definitely see a day when that could possibly start to happen.
6: Yeah. Well, ask, ask, Black Christians in the 1960s, how well their white Christian neighbors in the South treated them. Right. Particularly the ones that wore white robes and were Christian warriors. Yeah. And recruited in our churches. Yep. How well that went. Those
2: Christian knights, right?
6: One of the fundamental truths that particularly people of the Christian faith like myself refuse to admit or recognize is that overwhelmingly more Christians have been killed by fellow Christians than yes. by pagans, Muslims, Jews, or anybody else for that matter. Yep. And once you give people the power, of course, of force, and you give them a religious agenda mated with it, suddenly they start a purge campaign. And what'll happen is the same thing that happens to guys like, uh, um, I'm, I'm trying to think, uh, uh the, uh, the gentleman with, uh, with Lenin, uh, who was the one his, his Trotsky. Trotsky. Yeah. Yeah, other Christian groups become the Trotskys where they think they're insiders mm-hmm. and suddenly they don't have the majority behind them in yeah. the subgroup and suddenly they're on the outside looking in.
2: I can see more of a danger coming from just uh, Christian on Christians on Christians hurting each other than I can maybe see more atheists on Christians or um, Muslims on Christians. I can see more yeah. of a possibility of that.
6: I sure had heard Jesus. Jesus says, I was wounded in the house of my friends. You know, and he he even prophesied and said in the future, he says, uh, you will be persecuted by people who think they do God a favor. And so um, I think that's what's coming. And uh, what will bring it is when you stand up for people who are different, you will receive the attacks from fellow believers when you stand up for people, when you're the brother's keeper of people outside their ranks. Yes. When you advocate for them. Just like, you know, uh, a lot of people would have been treated fine with the Nazis had they not hid Jews in their closets.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: And Absolutely. that that's happened for not just Jews, but for other, um you know, outsider Christian groups and others. You come to the aid of somebody like that and you're going to re- receive the attacks from your own kind.
2: There's so much we could talk about with this gentleman, but I want to say one thing to the both of you. Uh, another thing that in an interview with Dr. Ward, how he had, uh, uh, at a certain point, had become challenged. I guess in like his 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 own Christian faith, and there are certain things that I encounter through the course of doing this show or other research that that, that challenges some some of my own beliefs, but you two gentlemen are very essential in keeping me grounded to where I need to be. And I want to thank you both for that. And having you both on is a, again, if, although no matter how briefly, is a, mm-hmm. is a real privilege.
6: Well, that's a mutual thing. I know Robert comment mm-hmm. on this, but I'm, I'm flattered that you said this because you're a very intelligent person that's better read than I am, and you have a, broad, a wider reach of knowledge and information on subjects than I do. But the, the fact is, all of this stuff that we look at and discuss and try to be honest about does not threaten the message of Jesus. Yeah. The message of Jesus transcends culture. You, you, you tell an American Indian what Jesus <coughs> taught, and they would shake their head and say, that makes good sense. <coughs> or right. take a, a tribesman in Polynesia or anywhere else, it makes good sense to them. The good news of the gospel, that God actually took action to liberate and free men, that's not bad news to anybody except maybe the powers that be that like to keep people enslaved. Absolutely. So it's all the other stuff that has to be tried and tested. And like, like I've said, anything that you set up beyond further critique has become an object of worship. And we could take many, many sacred type things, whether it be the Bible or our denomination or creeds or whatever else, and we can actually make those wonderful things substitutes. For Jesus himself. And everything is to be tested and critiqued against him. And it needs to continue to be critiqued and tested. And that process, uh, sometimes it seems scary, but it should not make us untrustworthy of each other. We should be open-minded to new data, to new discoveries, not swallow everything we hear but be willing to think and discuss how it relates to the revelation of Jesus. I'm speaking as a Christian. Your listeners are all sorts of different camps, But but I, I take that most of your listeners are truth seekers, wherever they come from. And if they have problems with Christianity, it's mostly some of the goofballs that they hear <laughs> that are the front men. It's like Alan Moore very rightfully said about how, how the organized religion is to God, sort of like how Colonel Tom Parker is to Elvis. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth into that.
2: Well, I want to thank you two gentlemen. Uh, we'll leave it on that note, but I want to thank you two gentlemen for being here. Thank you, Robert. it Thank you to the great Dr. Future. And uh, we're going to... Tomorrow night we're going to have... We're recording this on Saturday, May 30th, but uh, we're going to have an interview with... uh Rocky Stucci, um, we're going to be on his show, and uh, I guess we're going to be putting that up as also another uh, another Normal episode as well. So, and then after that, in about a week or so, we're going to have a very special guest, one that I'm real, real excited about. And uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us. And uh, we're going to call it a night. We'll be, but uh, we'll be back on Conspirormal. Oh.
3: When you need it, you're gonna let me know.
6: Hopefully you'll forget about when it. When
3: you've I mean you've been you've been working on your books endlessly. You don't really, wanna be don't distracted want to. I by calling that. that.
0: Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM.